Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. What are the sacraments? This is a term that gets used a lot in early Christian writing. It's sacramentum in the West or mysterion in the East. Sacramentum in Latin just means something which has been made holy. Sacare is to make holy, so it's an object which has been made holy or an experience made holy. It's a term which reoccurs throughout early church writing and is a preoccupation of early church writers. But what do they actually mean by this? If you turn to the Catechism in the back of the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, you'll find the Anglican answer to this question. The sacraments are outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual grace, given by Christ as sure and certain means by which we receive that grace. Well, very good. If you look in a Roman Catholic catechism, you'll find something very similar in the Baltimore Catechism, for example. If you look at Eastern Orthodox articulations of what the holy mysteries, the sacraments are, it's also a very similar articulation. If you look in Luther's catechism, that's a similar articulation. And this is not a coincidence. This is an understanding of the sacraments, these experiences, these objects, which are both physical in outward nature and spiritual in inner nature, through which we are transformed by a special experience of the grace of God. This understanding ranges from South India to Ethiopia and Eritrea to Turkey to Western France to England. All these early church writers are operating under the same understanding of what a sacrament is. So it's this core concept for early Christianity. But that definition really just scratches the surface. What does it mean to have an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace? Why do we need it? What is that for? Why do we even have the outward part? To answer that, it's helpful to look at two common extreme misunderstandings of what people are. So on the one hand, you have a hard materialist misunderstanding of a human person. This is the idea that a human being is some water and $5 worth of chemicals, and that we often have an experience like consciousness or desire or thought or dreams or whatever that we think we're actually having, but it's really just an illusion. These are just chemicals interacting in our brains and in our bodies. These are bonds being formed, bonds being dissolved, electricity passing from one place to another. And it gives us this strange illusion of something called consciousness. And though we feel like we are making free choices, I decide to have a hamburger instead of a salad, all that's actually just a predetermined uh, process of cause and effect. I have no more freedom than a rock has freedom rolling down a hill. It might feel like it's free, but in fact, uh, it's just being pulled by gravity and it has no choice in the matter. So everything is predetermined. There is no freedom. There is no real consciousness. My selfhood doesn't exist. Any sense at all that I have, that I am a thinking, feeling, living being, is just an illusion. And you might say, well, who is it that's having the illusion, if not me? Who's experiencing this? 
I think the materialists probably don't want to get into that because it sort of shows that this theory is absurd. But anyway, this is one conception that's out there. And this is a very hard, kind of insane conception held by very few people, thank goodness. But some aspects of this physicalist or materialist assumption uh, do work their way into our culture. On the other side of the coin, there is a very different understanding of human personhood. And this says that, in a sense, there's the real me, the true me, myself, that is trapped inside a body. And from this perspective, the body is just kind of like this husk or this meat machine that I walk around in or this corporeal prison or whatever it is, but it's not me. Like, I am not my body. So it's from this perspective that you get people making statements like, um, treat your body well and it will be treat you well. Well, you have to ask, like, well, who is the you that's being treated well, if not my body? Like, who, who is it that's being helped out by my body? Um, people will say, oh, I'm just not really in my body right now. Or, um, you know, my body has a really hard time healing or whatever it is. Like these, these strange statements that create this really strong dichotomy between the real me and my body. So between these two extremes, physicalism on one hand, we might think of it as Gnosticism on the other hand, there is human reality, what it's like to actually be a person. So I have thoughts and dreams and desires and assumptions and biases and likes and dislikes. And then I also have blood sugar. And when my blood sugar plummets, my perspectives on my thoughts and desires and likes and dislikes and all those things change radically. I have uh, mental states and moods and predispositions and all sorts of things. And I also have a thumb that uh, becomes my sole focus when I hit it with a hammer. So I am totally physical. I'm a very physical animal being. I live in the world. I have to eat and drink to stay alive. If you cut off my oxygen supply, I won't be around for very long. And I have consciousness. I have a mind. I have all the things in a living being that the ancient world would call a soul which is not a little glowing orb that floats around inside of you. The soul is the sum total of your thoughts, your personhood, your being, your life, everything that makes you, you. So I am body and soul as a human being. I am mind and body. I am consciousness and physicality. I am the total package. That's what it actually is to be a human being. And anyone who thinks that the body is insignificant and not a part of who they are, try cutting off a finger and see what happens. Like anyone who thinks that they are just completely physical and just a process of cause and effect, their wants, their desires, their thoughts, these are all illusory and don't really matter. I would advise them to sell everything they have and give the money to the poor. Because if you just have the consciousness of a rock rolling down a hill, or you're a rock rolling down the hill, but you have the illusion of consciousness or whatever, who cares whether you have a lot of money or not? But other people who are more invested in their personhood would actually like to feed their families, so help somebody out. Anyway, for the vast majority of us, we understand ourselves to be physical and mental. Physical and spiritual, body and soul, mind and body, however you want to talk about it. That is what it is to be a human being. And so, says St. Ambrose of Milan, if God is going to transform us, If God is going to reach out to us, change our hearts, change our lives, change who we are, he has to address not only our mental states, 
but our physicality as well. So if we were purely spiritual beings, if we were just kind of Casper the friendly ghosts floating around in a void, maybe God could just zap us with spiritual insight, we would get that insight, we would say A-okay, and be on board with whatever it is God wanted us to be on board with. But that has nothing to do with who we actually are. Because we are physical, we are spiritual, we are the whole package. And so God has to address us with means that are physical, that are spiritual, that are the whole package. In other words, sacraments. So for the early church, God's grace doesn't come to us merely by sitting down and reading a book, getting the right idea, and done deal. Nor is it through having some profound emotional experience. We go up on a mountaintop, we see the sunset, we say a prayer, and we are transformed. Instead, God comes to us in these completely boring, ordinary objects. A bath of water. Water into which you're dunked, water sprinkled on your head. How much more quotidian every day can you get than that? Taking a bath. He comes to us in bread and wine, the basic fare at any meal. Maybe we're having spaghetti tonight with bread and wine. Maybe we're having Kung Pao chicken tonight with bread and wine. Maybe it's some hummus with the bread, whatever it is. On the ancient table, you got the bread, you got the wine, the basics of the meal. God comes to us in olive oil. God comes to us in just two people falling in love. God comes to us in laying on hands. God comes to us in all these different ways with this transformative experience of his grace. So Tertullian of Carthage, writing around the end of the 200s, says, The flesh is washed in baptism, that the soul may be spotless. So normal bath happens, the flesh is washed, but the grace of that moment actually transforms the soul. He says the flesh is signed with a cross, so a cross in olive oil is drawn on the head in the sacrament of confirmation, that the soul may be protected. So after you're confirmed, you can still get run over by a bus, but the soul is actually protected and transformed by the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Tertullian says the flesh is overshadowed by the imposition of hands. So the bishop's hands come upon someone he is ordaining, a new deacon, a new priest, and those hands overshadow the soul. The Holy Spirit overshadows the soul, like a a luminous cloud coming over someone. They are overshadowed and transformed. Overshadows the soul that the soul may be illumined by the Spirit. The flesh feeds on the body and blood of Christ, so that the soul also may be filled up with God. So with our mouths we take in the sacrament of Holy Communion, the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ, and then the soul is filled up with God, filled to the brim with the presence of God. We are in a sense, born into our Christian life in the sacrament of new birth, which is baptism. We are given the strength to actually live out that life into which we have been born in the sacrament of confirmation. 
We are fed and sustained in the normal way that we are fed and sustained in this world through food. We consume food, we are given life, we are given strength, our bones grow, our muscles grow, and in the same way we receive the body and blood of Christ, Holy Communion, and our souls grow. We become filled up with God, transformed by God. In the sacrament of marriage, our relationships, propagation, the kind of human activity of falling in love is transformed. In ordination, some people are consecrated to be used only by the church, only for God's purposes. In all these different sacraments, there is this this ordinary, regular old act or object from the world, which is transforming us through the indwelling grace of God. For the early church, these were not just powerful experiences of God. They were actually our salvation being received in this life. It's important to point out that this is not salvation from God. This is salvation by God. So there's one understanding of salvation, which says that salvation is salvation from God's punishments. God wants to destroy you, but there's a loophole and you can use the loophole and get out of him destroying you. This is salvation by God, that the world actually wants to destroy us. The enemy wants to destroy us. Death, evil wants to destroy us. Sin wants to destroy us. And God is inviting us onto the path of life, the path of joy, the path of love, the path of peace. And this does not happen just after you die. It is here and now, being a living icon of Christ, being a living icon of the love of God, the goodness of God, the peace of God. And the way we begin that life is the sacraments, is baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, and so forth. So what do you mean, and so forth? In the early church, in documents like the Didache, there's a strong recognition that there are two sacraments which you cannot do without. So baptism, and arguably baptism slash confirmation, and the Eucharist are absolutely essential to the Christian life. You have to be brought into the body of Christ in baptism, receive the Holy Spirit in confirmation, and then receive the sustenance of the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. So for the early church, those are non-negotiables. If you don't have those, you are heavily missing out on this profound experience and transformation by God. But then there are lots of other ways in which God comes to us through the ordinary objects of the world and transforms us to our salvation. But a lot of these are not normative. It's not as though everyone has to experience these sacraments to be fully included in the church or to be really living out their vocation. So one of these is ordination. St. Paul talks about not placing hands upon a neophyte, not ordaining someone who is new to the faith. This idea of ordination, the laying on of hands, the consecrating of someone, God working through this act of laying on of hands, as Tertullian described, this goes all the way back to the apostles. They would lay their hands upon someone, consecrating them a bishop or a priest or a deacon, And that act of consecration, this simple gesture of laying on of human hands, through that God is working to transform that person into, in a sense, the possession of the church. Someone who is consecrated, who is set aside for the purposes of the church alone. The vast majority of people throughout history were not ordained. 
Probably the majority of saints were not ordained. Probably the majority of the best Christians in history were not ordained. In no way is ordination meant to be a normative thing. It's just something that God offers to mark out a select group of servants who are there to serve all of the other Christians. Not as the bosses of the Christians, not even as the best Christians, but as the servants of all those other Christians. St. Augustine of Hippo, in discussing his own consecration to the episcopate, so his own kind of ordination as a bishop, says, With you, I am a Christian. For you, I am a bishop. So in his praying together with other Christians, they're just a whole bunch of baptized Christians who are being transformed by receiving the body and blood of Christ. For other Christians, he serves as a bishop, but it is a servant ministry. So you have another sacrament, which is unction. So we see this in the letter of James, are any among you sick? Call for the priests of the church, the presbyters of the church, and have them pray over you and anoint you with oil. So unction is the sacrament of healing, the sacrament of reconciliation to God, the sacrament of transforming the body of corruption, the body of death, into a body built for life. So to this day, in my own tradition, in the Roman Catholic, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, when someone is very sick, They might call for the priests of the church to come and pray over that person and anoint them with blessed oil. There may be lots of people who are never horrifically ill until the moment of their death who don't experience the sacrament. Nothing wrong with that. It's not a deal breaker. It is just a gift that God gives to his people through the ministry of his church. In, again, my tradition, the Eastern Orthodox, the Roman Catholic tradition, And I believe in at least some uh, areas of the Lutheran tradition, we also still have the sacrament of confession. So in the early church, confession was extremely important, but it was brutal. So in the early church, you do something really, really bad, and you stand up in church on Sunday, surrounded by everybody else, and you're like, uh, can we just have a minute? I have an announcement to make. And everyone's like, oh, is it a thing about the coffee hour? Uh, Do you need new uh, diapers for the diaper drive? Whatever it is. Yeah, I I murdered my cousin, Larry. His body's in the trunk of my uh, chariot outside. And uh, I just want to confess that. And everybody, you know, the blood drains from their faces. They look at you like you're a crazy person. It's terrifying. And the priest comes up and says, okay, that's that's really bad, you know? God loves you. God wants you to be reconciled to himself. Um, but before the fullness of that reconciliation can take place, you should spend some time combating these urges within you, combating sin within you. So why don't you spend seven years on a Lenten vegan diet? And why don't you spend seven years not receiving communion? And, you know, maybe you'll wear sackcloth and ashes, maybe you'll avoid marital relations, whatever else it is, but do seven years of penance. And, you know, also you could make some restitution to the family, you can admit your crime to the cops, whatever it is, and then you'll be readmitted to communion. You'll be readmitted to the fullness of participation in the Christian community. 
So that's what confession looked like early on. It was confession to the whole church, taking this deep, dark, terrifying, horrific secret and announcing it out loud in the midst of the congregation. Pretty intense. So as a mercy, early on, the church started saying, okay, that's a very high bar. Why don't we say that you make your confession and the priest will represent the whole of God's people? You make an appointment with the priest, you kneel down, and you tell this deep, dark secret that you have to get off your chest to God in the presence of the priest. And then God works through that priestly ministerial presence to give you this profound, astonishing grace of the experience of his forgiveness. I can't imagine what it's like to get up in the midst of the congregation and tell your friends, your family, your neighbors, strangers, the clergy, everybody, uh, the darkest things you don't want to tell anybody. But I can tell you, as someone who's made my own confession and heard lots of confessions, it's also terrifying to do it even with just one other person. But as one of the Desert Fathers, these early uh, 3rd century, 4th century monks who lived out in the desert, the Desert Fathers and Mothers, as one of the Desert Fathers says, the devil loves an unconfessed thought. So when you open your thoughts, when you open these deep, dark corners you're trying to forget are there, you're trying to tamp down, you're trying to hide to another person, to a brother or a sister, and you hear them say, whoa, that is bad, but there's lots of bad stuff in the world. You know, lots of, lots of people have done bad things. God still loves you. It grows from this thought where you're like, um, you know, I committed adultery. I'm the worst person ever. I hate myself so much. I'm a monster. I'm Hitler part two. And it shrinks down to, that was really bad. That's the worst thing I've ever done. I never, ever want to do that again. I need to be reconciled to my spouse. I need to change my life. I need to work on myself. I need to do whatever it takes to make sure that never happens again. So it shrinks from this astronomical guilt to repentance. I see where I've strayed. I see the path of Christ. I want to get back on that path. And this is the case for the big sins like murder Uh, And it's also the case for what the world would typically call the smaller sins, judging others, gossip, unkindness, selfishness, failure to share what you have with others, with the needy. All this stuff, God takes off our shoulders with his grace of the incredible experience of his forgiveness in the sacrament of confession. And it is really powerful and amazing and beautiful. So it was terrifying in the early church. Fairly quickly, early on, they reduced it to being something a little bit uh, more manageable in which you just go and share the deepest, darkest corners of your heart with a clergy person as opposed to everybody else in the church. Uh, but the the grace of the sacrament remains just the same and, and is profoundly wonderful. It's important to point out that Confession is not the sacrament of earning God's forgiveness or convincing God to forgive you. God's forgiveness, God's love for each of us is infinite. It's we that build these hard walls around our hearts to keep God out. And it's a sacrament in which God chips away at some of that plaque around the heart. 
It's a sacrament in which God brings a little bit of the holy wrecking ball of grace to smash down some of those walls and make us vulnerable to his love again. Lastly, we have the sacrament of marriage that rounds out the list of seven. And marriage is taking the ordinary love that passes between two people and imbuing it with the grace of God's blessing. I've been to various secular weddings in which the couple, rather than reading from ancient vows, just choose to write their own. And they're often like, you know, I love you so much because you're so beautiful and you have this amazing smile and you always buy me donuts on Wednesdays and you're an amazing heart surgeon and you're rich and you have a Lamborghini, what, like whatever it is. It's this list of qualities that I appreciate about you that make me want to be with you. And it really speaks to a transactional understanding of love. Love is this uh, feeling that I have that you produce in me. Love is a certain dedication that I have to hanging on to you and all your good qualities because you make me happy. And this is kind of the basic human understanding of love. It is transactional. It is, uh, in, in a sense, sort of commercial. Like, I'm, I'm getting the best deal I can, the most beautiful, the most handsome, the smartest, the richest, the whateverest. And uh, I'm investing in this, and I'm hoping my investment doesn't um, decline in value. I hope you don't get less beautiful, and I hope you don't find a better investment to invest in yourself. You have an affair and go off with someone else. I hope that I continue to be satisfied by this relationship that I'm acquiring and committing to forever. That's my hope. That's why I'm marrying you. And marriage in the church is taking this human transactional understanding of love. I want to get married because we get along really well. You make me happy. I'm attracted to you, whatever. And it's transforming it via grace into selfless love. I want to get married so I can serve you. I want to get married so that I can build a life with you, so that I can give myself to you. Obviously, when one member of the relationship is doing this, but the other isn't, that's called an abusive marriage. I want to give everything to you. Thanks, I'll take it. I'm out of here. But when both people are doing this, I want to live my life for you. No, I want to live my life for you. That is a perfect marriage. It is mutual selflessness. But it's not just for the couple. It's not just for their kids. It's not just for any family that might be hanging around they happen to take care of because they share a household. Instead, marriage is meant to transform you to look more like Christ. If you are living a life of selflessness at home, if you are putting yourself second and another first, if you are living a life of mutual obedience where the two spouses are constantly obeying one another, caring for one another, serving one another, then that becomes what someone in the early church called a school for the Lord's service. You are constantly building up muscles of selflessness. You are constantly practicing goodness. You are constantly practicing agape, selfless love, such that when you then pass a stranger who is in need, or when you then pass someone who is desperately lonely, or you have the opportunity to visit a prisoner or a captive or to clothe the naked or to feed the hungry, whatever it is, 
your go-to is like, yeah, of course. I'm, I, this is the way I operate all the time. I'm just used to serving other people. And gradually, you start to look less and less like yourself, and you start to look more and more like Christ. You become this reflection of the love of God, the goodness of God. Not because you are so awesome, but because of God's grace that is dwelling within you and transforming you through the sacrament of marriage, this ongoing life of selflessness empowered by his grace. That's a pretty long list. What are the ones that get left off the list? Are there controversial ones? Are there things the church doesn't want you to know know about? Are there secret rites? Not at all. So the ones that could have gone on the list, that didn't go on the list in the Roman Catholic tradition, that are not part of the core list in the Anglican theology, that are sometimes part of the list in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, are things like monastic profession. So priests and deacons and bishops are consecrated, they're ordained, and monks profess their life to God, this life of non-ordained service living in community, giving themselves to poverty and chastity and obedience. So that is uh, often seen as sacramental in the East. So there there are some differences in the lists, but the, the basic idea is a normal, ordinary, this-worldly act through which the grace of God is actually transforming you. So next time we'll get into a little bit more detail on some of these sacraments. This is kind of a broad overview. And we'll also talk about what the heck we mean by grace. This is a term which gets bandied around about so much. It's the namesake of the church that I serve. And yet we don't really do a deep dive into what does this mean? So what did grace mean for the early church? What the heck are we actually talking about? All shall be revealed next time. Thank you for joining me for the History of Christianity. 